this morning to the book of Revelation chapter 19, Sunday morning studying the book of Revelation together, and uh, now in chapter 19. As we're making our way there, just a reminder, Sunday night we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, we're currently in the gospel according to John. We'll be studying chapter 3, one of the most famous verse chapters in the Bible uh, this evening, and for those of you who talk about being born again, and uh, that may be something that's a new word or uh, fully understanding it, and of course we'll get it right from uh, its source tonight as we see, and, and uh, uh, the, the context of it is, is Jesus brings it out, and so all of you are invited to come out this evening, 6 o'clock. Chapter 19, after these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments because He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and He has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed by her. And again they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you servants and those who fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your love. And I pray and we pray that that great fact, that great reality would just impact each one of our hearts individually here as we stand before you. You're a God who loves and we are grateful for that. We thank you this morning for your faithfulness always faithful, always been faithful. And we thank you for that history that each and every one of us has with you. And we pray for ourselves and each one that stands here before you now that just the reality of that, um, the fact that you are always, always faithful would impact each person's situation, the things that are in their mind and in their hearts, the things that are before them in the future, the things they face today. Thank you for your word. We pray that in your grace and in your love you would open it up to us this morning and that we would meet with you as we study it this morning. And we ask for this work of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. 
And one of the biggest uh, understatements of all time I have entitled this morning's message, Heaven is a Wonderful Place. And for those of you who might have uh, raised children, when Karen and I uh, raised our children, uh, you know it's a nod to uh, Kids Praise One and Salty when Ernie Rettino uh, uh, wrote the song, Heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face because heaven is a wonderful place. I want to go there. Now, when we come to these verses here in chapter 19, um, you might have, as we've been going through chapters uh, uh, 4, or really through 6 through uh, uh, 18, we've had a lot of information about what is going on on the earth during the seven-year tribulation period. So some of you might have entered your mind and uh, the question in the course of it, well, we're glad to know all of that, and we are, but what are we as Christians going to be doing for the seven-year period, tribulation period in heaven while all of this is going on? And uh, these verses in chapter 19 Uh, answer that question for us. First, we're told in verses 1 through 6 that we're going to be very engaged in worshiping God and uh, worshiping Him and for His works. I think it's very important to be careful not to view yourself or all of us uh, in heaven as Christians. Offering up worship to God is these great uh, uh, automatons or as just these mind-numbed robots that some kind of a cue gets hit in heaven, uh, and then all of a sudden we head into these praises and in, uh, into this worship of God, or the idea that the worship that we offer God there is just kind of mindlessly spouted uh, forever and ever. And if that's our perception of heaven, if that's our perception of uh, the kind of worship that we're going to be offering to God in heaven, then we wouldn't be surprised uh, that many people would look at our future portion uh, in heaven and wonder if it might not get a little old over time. But remember, all worship is a response. It is a response to something, a provocation, something that provokes worship within us. Worship is never uh, a sterile, self-existent thing. It is always tied to something else, and that something else that provokes it within our heart and to the object of our worship. And we will need to worship God because as we see His glory and we witness the decisions that He makes, we witness His works, we're going to have uh, a need to worship Him. We've noticed here in the past in this series that Christianity is a singing religion because God and all of His wisdom and all of His power and His love and His grace and the beauty of His salvation, all of these things, it requires Christianity to be a singing religion, to be a praising religion. When a person is filled with the Holy Spirit and then encounters who God is and what God is, 
it provokes worship and praise uh, within us. You can't know God and, and witness His glory and His wisdom unfolding all around us without being overwhelmed by it and sensing a need to worship Him and to give Him praise. Probably all of us have had those times in our Christian life where God does something for us. He's always doing something for us. But there's that something that's just extraordinary. Uh, we see His fingerprints so clearly upon, uh, upon the situation as He does it in some, our life in some way or in some situation in our life. And spontaneously, out of our heart, we just have to say, thank you, Lord, for what you have done here. We didn't turn to a verse in the Bible that told us that you need to do that when these things happen. It just comes out of our life in response to His goodness within our life. And we know that feeling within our lives. Well, that is what we're going to experience in heaven forever and ever. The worship that we offer God is not going to be self-existent or independent of Him. It will be something that will pour out of our hearts forever and ever because forever and ever He is going to stun us with Himself. We're going to see something new that is just going to provoke it within us. And that's going to be our eternal portion. Following God's judgment upon the religious Babylon and commercial Babylon, as we've seen in the last couple of chapters, all of heaven, and including us at that time, we are going, heaven is going to explode in worship toward God for having uh, judged those, uh, those two forms of, of Babylon. And this judgment that comes upon the earth, it is going to be a cause for lamentation and weeping uh, on the earth. But in heaven, it's going to be met with great rejoicing and celebration. And I don't think it's for the destruction of commercial and religious Babylon in and of itself. As we've seen previously, uh, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. God uh, doesn't uh, rejoice in the death uh, of the wicked, but it, it comes forth as an expression of God's righteousness, and we will rejoice over it because the judgment is necessary then to make way for what happens in the latter part of chapter 19, and that is Jesus' second coming. And then all that follows that in the Revelation. Now, before we get to the specifics of the worship that we're one day going to offer God uh, here in the passage, there's a particular word that's repeated four times uh, in the passage that we read, and it is the word Alleluia. It's used in verse 1, in verse 3, in verse 4, and again in verse 6. It, it is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew hallelujah. And hallelujah means praise the Lord. 
Uh, the Hebrew word hallelujah is made up of two other Hebrew words, hallel, which means praise, and Yah, which is the name of God, Yahweh. Praise the Lord, praise Yahweh. And Yahweh is uh, the single greatest name for God in the Bible. It is always the, the name of, for God that is used uh, in the Bible when you see Lord in all capital uh, letters. And so almost everyone in the world, of course, has heard the word hallelujah so much that it is uh, understood universally uh, as a word for praise the Lord. I remember being in Romania the first Easter following the, the fall and, uh, of the communist dictator Ceausescu. And as we were making our way in a taxi uh, to the church, I was with Gail Irwin and he was uh, scheduled to speak at a, a particular church and we made our way uh, through the capital city, Bucharest, and the churches were jammed, all of them jammed, coming out from under communism and people, the, the lines for them flowed out onto the street and down uh, the sidewalk. It was so exciting. And in the church that, that we went into, I was way up in the balcony, way, way uh, in the back. No fire marshal would have wanted to be in that room, <laughs> and given how much we were packed in there. And they sang that morning, uh, they sang uh, the Hallelujah Chorus uh, from Handel's Messiah. And here we are, and it's being sung in Romania. Uh, Romanian, and I don't know any Romanian, uh, unless that's my prayer language, I don't know. But, uh, but I, don't, uh, I don't know any Romanian, and there's all kinds of foreigners in the, in the room as well. And we all knew how to come in on that uh, hallelujah, and so the song would be going, and then we'd get to the hallelujah, and it would explode, because everybody knows in the whole world uh, just about what hallelujah uh, means. Now, one of the reasons uh, this is noteworthy in terms of these hallelujahs that are here in chapter 19 is that while the word hallelujah is used uh, broadly and uh, extensively in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, hallelujah is only used four times in the entire New Testament. And all four times are found here in chapter 19. It's the only place where you see this expression of praise to the Lord uh, in the entire New Testament. Someone has said that Alleluia uh, has described it as one of the most admirable words of praise ever made known on earth earth. And that's true. It really, uh, really is. There's so many times where you, you just can't quite put it into words, what you, you want to say to God. And, and that has been supplied uh, to us at those times and really always. So if we allow these four hallelujahs to kind of guide us here, in this heavenly scene, we're going to be a, a part of one day. Uh, it, it, we're going to uh, see what it is that we will praise the Lord for uh, during the tribulation period. And it's for five principal things. 
First in verse 1, there's a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven will praise the Lord uh, because salvation and glory and honor and power belong to Him. And so here we get a chance to see what is at stake uh, when God judges religious and commercial Babylon. Wickedness and evil exist at the expense of God's salvation, at the expense of His glory and His honor and His power. And while these things can be threatened by man's evil and rebellion uh, presently, it's going to be God's salvation, glory, honor, and power that will have the final say in human history. And that's a good reason to say uh, hallelujah, and we will. Second, hallelujah is offered for God for the fact that His judgments are righteous and true. We've spoken about this earlier um, in this series. But every judgment of God, every portion of His, judgment, His judgments are always true. That is, they're perfectly conformed to truth, to His truth. They are righteous in that they are perfectly just and they are perfectly right. And repeatedly here in the book of Revelation, we're told that when we see what God does in every situation, even in His judgment, what He does in His dealing with every single uh, individual uh, person, we're going to recognize it as being absolutely true and absolutely just and, and so righteous and true that it will provoke us to cry out hallelujah to the Lord over his, his dealings. And so uh, concerning commercial and religious Babylon, her judgments will be nothing less than what she deserves. As it's said here, her corruption of the entire earth and then, and then also her martyrdom, her, her uh, murder of Christians during the tribulation period simply for being uh, Christians. And so for these things, she deserves total destruction and, uh, and she's going to receive that. And that brings us to our third point in verse 3. The third hallelujah is offered up for the fact that his judgments of uh, commercial and religious uh, Babylon will be final. You notice that her smoke will rise up forever. Doesn't mean that it's going to exist forever and into a new heavens and a new earth. Probably speaks of the fact that her destruction is permanent or it could be the fact that the judgment of those who profited from her wickedness, their judgment will be forever and ever. You notice in verse 4 that the 24 elders and the four living creatures also worship and praise uh, God uh, for the same thing. We remember that the 24 elders represent the church uh, in, the, in the tribulation period or in, in the, uh, the symbolism of revelation and the four living creatures are angelic uh, beings. And even the angelic beings are going to offer this worship to the Lord. Remember, Satan was an angelic being who fell. 
and led in his rebellion against God. These four living creatures are angelic beings. Satan has come out of their realm to do uh, his evil and to bring his evil into God's creation. And uh, even the angelic beings in heaven will be thrilled at uh, the end that comes to him and to his, uh, uh, his, and for his judgment. They cry out, Alleluia, but you notice they add an amen to it. Now, uh, if Alleluia or Hallelujah takes a second place in terms of Bible terms that are recognized by the culture as a whole, it probably only takes a second seat to this other word, and that is the word amen. And amen means that's the truth. It means so be it. And so here they, they will, the church and the angelic realm, will cry out to the Lord, uh, Amen, Alleluia, Lord, uh, do it. Move on to your second coming uh, and on to the kingdom uh, age. The fifth reason for Alleluia is given in verse 6. It's offered to God in praise because the Lord God omnipotent, that is all-powerful, reigns. And so an angelic being then comes forth from the throne of God. He calls on everyone in heaven, those who fear Him, whether they're small or whether they're great, to praise the Lord. And so we will then obey. Remember, you're going to be here. We're going to obey then that uh, exhortation to praise the Lord. And uh, our praise uh, coming forth, we're told, it, it, with the volume of a thousand Niagara Falls and then accented by uh, mighty thunderings. I don't know how you put it into words. That's the best I can do for how loud this praise and this worship will be offered to God uh, for uh, His judgment and the moving forward of His uh, eternal plan. And what we're going to proclaim with, uh, with joy to God, with gratitude toward uh, God, is... Uh, uh, given to us here, and I mean, the, it, it fairly jumps off of the page. Hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. And again, Handel endeavored to uh, capture, and, I, and I, if anything could capture or even be a valiant attempt at capturing this scene, uh, the Hallelujah chorus and Handel's Messiah. Uh, does it. And so uh, it's uh, awe-inspiring, uh, the, that, that section of Handel's Messiah. Uh, this is going to be off of the graph uh, one day. And uh, how wonderful to read it on the page. How about the fact that one day we're going to stand there and we're going to be uh, right in the middle of it. I think that sometimes the best way to appreciate a truth in the Bible is to ask ourselves what things would be like if the opposite were true. What if God wasn't righteous? What if He wasn't true? What if He wasn't all-powerful and almighty? What if there wasn't any hope that someone was going to rise up and bring an end to man's wickedness and, and rebellion uh, against uh, uh, God? But going forward now in the Revelation from that, uh, that future time in human history, 
No rival throne is going to survive. He alone is going to reign. And that word reign, it means to rule over. It means to control completely. Everything will be dominated by Him and, and His will. And to that we will say hallelujah. So again, today we read it. One day we will be there and we will experience it. And we will praise God for these four reasons and even more. The second thing that we're going to be doing during that seven-year tribulation will be to participate in what is known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the Lamb speaks of, uh, of Jesus. And uh, to participate in the marriage of the Lamb in, uh, in the church becoming his wife, and then to participate in uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb there in verses 7 through 10. Now, important, in, in order to understand what it is that is being said here, it is very, very important to understand something about a, a Jewish wedding progression uh, to, to get our, our minds uh, around this and to picture it as uh, is of Jesus in his relationship to his bride, uh, the church. So for Christians, the Bible teaches, we are the bride of Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote of this and he wrote to the church at Corinth, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband and that, you may, uh, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul writes this lengthy uh, section of Scripture in his letter to the church in Ephesus uh, detailing uh, marriage and the roles within marriage related to husbands and wives. And he closes that section out by saying, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And uh, as John the Baptist, as he, and uh, we'll see, that, uh, see it tonight as we study chapter 3 of John, the religious leaders come to him. They try to provoke him to jealousy because Jesus is becoming more prominent than John the Baptist at that moment in John the Baptist's uh, uh, ministry. And they thought that would trouble John the Baptist. It didn't trouble him at all. He said, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. In Jewish wedding progression, the first step involved the betrothal. And that involved three uh, steps of its own. The prospective groom would travel from his father's house to the house of the prospective bride. Second, he would then pay the purchase price for his bride. And then third, he would establish the covenant, the wedding covenant, or the commitment. Jesus did this in his first coming in his relationship to the church, the bride of Christ, when he came from his father's house, he came from heaven to the home of the prospective bride, that is the earth, speaking of his incarnation, while on the earth, the uh, home of his prospective bride, he purchased her 
uh, with his blood, his death upon the cross. And the result of that is that we are betrothed to, uh, to uh, him as a chaste virgin. The second thing that would occur in the Jewish wedding progression is that the groom would then return to his father's house. And there, so there would follow this time of separation between uh, the bride and the groom. And when the groom would then return to his father's house, it would be with the intent now of building or adding on to the family home uh, uh, square footage that would then allow uh, him to marry and, and have shelter for, his, uh, for him uh, and his bride. And so Jesus is presently uh, doing this for us now. He's preparing heaven for our arrival. John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus declared to the disciples, Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, for in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And he spoke that in the context in which any uh, Jewish person would understand it in the light of, of uh, a Jewish wedding progression. Then the third part of the progression is that the groom would then return for his bride. But he would return for his bride at a time that was completely unknown to her, but also completely unknown to him. It was the father who decided when everything was uh, satisfactory and, and everything was ready, and then he would give the son the green light to go get his uh, bride. And so she always had to be watching and waiting for the arrival of her groom. She had to keep oil in her lamp in case he came uh, at, at nighttime. And of course, Jesus will do this in the future by way of the rapture of the church. This is why Jesus taught concerning the rapture. He said, but of that day and hour no one knows, but even the heaven, uh, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And when Jesus taught that parable of the ten virgins, he said, watch therefore, uh, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And because we don't know the time of the rapture, when our groom is coming to get us as his, his bride, the Bible says that we're always to be watching and, and waiting for his return uh, for us. He has already invested so much in this marriage. And uh, now we just wait for this next step uh, in that. And then finally, having received his bride, uh, the groom would then take her uh, to his father's house in order to marry her. And then following the marriage ceremony, they would celebrate what is known as the wedding feast. And so even as Jesus is going to do one day uh, in taking us into heaven, uh, 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 that he is prepared for us at the time of, of the rapture. Uh, again, in John chapter 14, he didn't stop with, I go to prepare a place uh, for you, but he went on to say, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so following the wedding ceremony, the bride and the groom would celebrate 
in a wedding feast that would last for seven days, the seven days, of course, corresponding to the seven years of the tribulation uh, period. In our passage, you notice in verse 7 that uh, the marriage occurs there in verse 7. The bride now becomes uh, the wife of the groom, and then it's all of that is followed in verse 9 by this uh, marriage supper. And the marriage supper was just pure uh, celebration in the ancient world. And, uh, and it would go on for a week, the celebrating of these two uh, lives being united and uh, celebrating what would be uh, for most the most exciting day in their life, their wedding day. That's the kind of excitement that's going to mark the marriage supper of the Lamb for those of you who have been married, uh, are married in, in, in the anticipation of that wedding day. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming, and the day finally comes. And now we're married, and all of our you know, dreams and hopes have, have come to pass there. And just that excitement, and that excitement and that joy is going to be our eternal uh, portion. And it, it's going to be uh, the, the same way for uh, for us. And it was uh, this marriage supper that Jesus referred to when he established the Lord's Supper. And he said an odd thing in establishing the Lord's Supper communion uh, with the disciples, and, uh, 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 that are, uh, and that's to be practiced by all Christians. And he said, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And that is speaking about this marriage supper uh, of the Lamb when this will occur. Then after the seven-day wedding feast, the bride and the groom would then be presented to the entire world as husband and wife, and just as at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, we as Christians, the bride of Christ, were going to be presented to the entire world uh, as the bride of Christ when we accompany Jesus back to the earth at His second coming, which we will study, uh, God willing, next week. You notice in the latter part of verse 7 and into verse 8 that the brightest described, uh, his wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, uh, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now we have to be very careful uh, not to look at this and, and think that this is describing uh, the perfect righteousness of Jesus that's put to our account, a positional righteousness, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. So that every time God sees us as a Christian, He doesn't see our unrighteousness, He sees the righteousness of Christ that's been put to our account because we've trusted in Him as our Savior. It refers to the righteous acts or the righteous life that we live as Christians after becoming Christians. And so, once we're saved, as we obey God's commandments, as we uh, walk with Him, as we uh, obey Him out of gratitude for His love that He's shown us, the grace that He has, has shown us, 
all of these right deeds that we do, all of this obedience is one day going to make up our wedding gown at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I think it's a beautiful way to look at uh, our obedience to God, our service to God, all of these things that we uh, invest in our relationship uh, with God, each and every act of obedience makes our wedding gown a little more complete and a little more beautiful for that day. And of course, there isn't a bride I've ever met that doesn't want to be as beautiful as she can be on her wedding day. And of course, the idea is the same thing uh, for us. As we obey God and uh, we live for Him, uh, it is a preparation uh, that, that assures the fact that we will look as beautiful, so to speak, as we can on that wedding day. And so Jesus' blood, His sacrifice gets us into heaven, uh, but the life that we have lived as a Christian, that's going to adorn us uh, there. And so the quality of Christian life that we live today, it matters. Uh, it makes a difference, and, and it matters for uh, eternity. And then you notice in verse 9 that the voice tells John to write, blessed are those who are called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so some people think that this group that is invited to the marriage supper uh, of the Lamb speaks of Old Testament saints, that you'll have the marriage supper of the Lamb that will involve New Testament saints, Christians, and then uh, the Old Testament saints will then be uh, called uh, and invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't like that particularly. I think it creates all kinds of problems. I think it's best to understand this as one commentator put it as uh, an example of the flexible symbolism found in Revelation. An example of the flexible symbolism found in Revelation. That is, that in this scene, Christians are described as both the Lamb, uh, 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 the bride of the Lamb, and then also as the guests who participate in the marriage supper. And, and this use of, this flexible use of symbolism, uh, it's not un unprecedented in, uh, in the Revelation. You might remember back in chapter 12, the children uh, of uh, Israel are represented there as a woman clothed in the sun, and then also uh, as her children as well. And so this is a characteristic uh, of, of the revelation in its symbolism. The Apostle John was told in verse, uh, end of verse 9, these are the true sayings of God. And so this is, uh, when we look at what is on the page here, uh, the idea is, we can look at it and think this is, this is almost too good to be true that this is one day going to be our portion. And so the angel comes in and he reassures John, he reassures uh, us that all of these things are a sure part of our future. And then the sight of all of this, it simply overwhelms John there in verse 10. You can imagine here he is, he's seeing this uh, prophetically and, and he gets so excited over the sight of it, he falls down at the feet of the angel, begins to worship the angel uh, for simply playing his part in delivering the message uh, to him. 
And the angel, of course, was very quick to rebuke him and exhorted him to worship God alone. And the angel declares, hey, I'm a servant of God just like you. There are differences between, massive differences between angels and mankind, but we are united in the fact that we are uh, both servants of God. And then this is closes then with the declaration that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So Jesus said concerning the entire Bible, concerning the Old Testament and the New Testament, he spoke to the religious leaders of his day. He said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have everlasting life. You're looking for a formula by which to achieve everlasting life. But these are they which testify of me. So not only does the whole Bible testify of Jesus, every bit of prophecy uh, speaks of Jesus. Because Jesus is going to bring every bit of prophecy in the Bible to its ultimate end, to its ultimate uh, fulfillment. And, uh, and we'll see that next time uh, as He returns to the earth at His second coming as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. And so there you have it. A glimpse of what it is that we're going to be doing during those seven years uh, of the tribulation period uh, vastly superior to what will be happening on the earth uh, during that, that same time. There will be the marriage supper of the Lamb is just the start of those eternal blessings and then moving on to Jesus' second coming. And so now, after the rapture of the church into heaven, none of us has to be wandering around up there wondering what happens next. And if you're up there going, what happens next? Tell them you went to a different church that never, <laughs> never taught you Revelation chapter 19. But no, this is an important part of God's Word for us to understand what it is that's going to be our eternal portion. Prophecy is history in advance, and I'll tell you what a future we have. It is filled with alleluias being offered to the Lord and offered for good reasons. We won't even be able to keep those alleluias uh, in our heart as we witness what we will witness one day and then to experience the marriage supper of the Lamb and so much more. And so here it is described on the pages of Scripture. One day it will be our actual experience. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, heaven is a wonderful place. God loves you and He wants to save you. And He wants to forgive you of your sins because your sin separates you from a relationship with Him and thus it will separate you from an eternity uh, in heaven. And so there are going to be uh, men and women up in front immediately after the service and they would love to pray with you uh, this morning to put your faith in Jesus Christ, to move from the judgment that you deserve, that all of us deserves because of our sin, even an eternal judgment, and then to know that that is no longer my future portion, but that my future portion is going to be heaven. And in the meantime, the most glorious thing about salvation, the thing that makes heaven desirable in heaven, is that when we give our lives to the Lord, we begin a personal relationship with God.
the very thing that we've been created for. And it's all waiting for you. It's just there for the asking and the receiving. And we encourage you to come forward and make this today the day of your salvation. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for our Savior. We thank you for how he has overwhelmed our past. He overwhelms our present. And his sacrifice overwhelms our future. You have thought of everything in providing him to us. And we thank you this morning. In his name, in Jesus' name, amen.